The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we are lucky enough to have a returning guest, one of my favorite people in the world, Dr. Mark McCargo. Mark is talking to us from England, from the UK this morning, and or actually, it's not this morning in the UK, is it, Mark? Welcome, Mark, to the show. Hi there, Cheryl. It's great to be with you. It's uh, just tea time here in the uh-huh. London fashion. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Terrific. So, um, well, while you're having tea, we will have a conversation. How about that? Um, so, so, or, or are you having tea, or are you moving into the little nip before tea? <laughs> well, I just have I have a cup of tea here, but I'll be doing my best not to slurp it loudly for everybody who's listening. <laughs> so, Mark, I'm really so grateful to have you back. Um, it's been a couple of years, and you have been working busily on a new book that has come out that we're going to talk a lot about. You call yourself a recovering physicist, which I just love that term. And yeah, it's a recovering physicist. It's, a, it's a, you're never fully better from being a physicist, but however, I work with it. I take things a day at a time and, uh, you know, keep on. So your your focus for the last few years has been around um, helping people to increase effectiveness in the workplace, and you are director of the Center for Solutions Focus at Work. Let's talk just for a couple of minutes about that and then move into the um, new arena that has grown out of that, um, host leadership. So let's talk a bit about solutions focus. You know, what, just give us a synopsis of what that means people. Okay, well, solutions focus is the worst title in the world because it sounds as if it's something to do with <laughs> being bright and positive. Um, actually, solutions focus comes from the world of therapy, from solution-focused brief therapy. Mm. Uh, it's a very pragmatic and powerful set of tools. And nearly 20 years ago, I discovered this pragmatic and powerful set of tools, like on the back shelf of the therapy cupboard. And Mm -hmm. I immediately thought, aha, if only managers and coaches had access to these tools and this way of thinking, they could do some really good stuff. And so uh, in 2002, I published the book, The Solutions Focus, uh, which was the first business book about this set of ideas and set of tools. Uh, and it's done very well. We've uh, formed an international uh, network groups. We have an international professional body now with an academic journal. Uh, it's taken off in many, many parts of the world. And solution-focused 
coaching or managing is all about the difference between solution building and problem solving. Ah. Problem solving is about trying to fix what's wrong, as you would with a broken motor car, for example. Solution building, which is what solution focus is about, is yeah. nothing to do with problem solving at all. It's entirely to do with working out which direction you want to be heading in and then looking at what works already at moving you in this direction and then building on that. And what's the curious so thing? The curious thing is that you'd think if you were stuck that nothing would be working. But we find consistently, consistently, consistently that that's just not the case. If you know how to look and you know how to ask and you know how to have conversations with people, you can find things that are working already, even in the most stuck situation, which gives us some ammunition to build on, some resources to uh, pull together, and something to take small steps about, which is another key part of that approach, not taking big steps, but taking small steps that build on, builds on what works. Well, and that, you know, oftentimes, as you know, you find those answers in what we as consultants like to call the workaround, right? So when things aren't working in organizations, people figure out how to make things work, and they build workarounds, the system, so that they can avoid what's not working in the system but still get their job done. And within those workarounds is a lot of work. <laughs> it's not very efficient, right? And so when you go in and ask those questions that you're talking about, they can often find the clues to the parts that it's working, which I just love. I just, I just love because um, what you have then are people who say, see, I knew we could do this better. <laughs> if if leadership would just get out of the way and let us do it, right? Oftentimes, yeah. It's a, it's a lot about what's, uh, how the organization actually works yes. as opposed to how it's supposed to work on paper or well, in somebody's uh, mind. And uh, we'd like to, love to try and find how it actually works and then build on that because you're right. People have all sorts of ways of getting things done in the, in the informal sense. Um, and it, often it's, uh, it's in those things. There are traces of very interesting things that we can build on, acknowledge, uh, uh, add to, and so forth. So fast forward from um, all of the solutions work and you being the good student of um, the field that you are and a, a student of the way people function and tick. I love the, your curiosity that you hold for how things actually work and how people actually experience their work. Um, you moved into this concept that you have coined as host. And your new book, which is called Host, Six New Roles of Engagement for Teams, Organizations, Communities, and Movements, which you co-authored with Helen Bailey. Um, this talks about this kind of groundbreaking perspective on how to increase productivity, how to increase effectiveness, and how to um, really empower people to be their best. So talk to us about host. So host starts as a metaphor, the leader as a host. And a host, of course, is someone who receives or entertains guests. That's the dictionary definition. Uh, 
Um, and some of the listeners will, and I know that, be familiar with servant leadership, the whole set of writings around that. This is a kind of a build and extension and a new chapter in that, I'd like to think. Um, it's interesting that the host and guest relationship is a really, really subtle and rich one. Um, and we can compare the relationship you get. If you think of yourself as a host and you think of the other people as guests, you are both, as a host, responsible for them in some way and also at their service, which is a really paradoxical pair of ideas to hold together. Mm. But I think it gives us a very, very interesting leadership perspective around the metaphor of the leader as a host. And the leader as a host will automatically be thinking of the other people involved as yeah. their guests. And we can compare that with the classic hero version of leadership, the hero metaphor, which of course has been around mm. thousands of years for good reason. Yeah. Um, the hero comes in and sorts everything out and saves the day. And you see that in the movies with Superman and uh, uh, and so forth. And also in the business book section, you know, with these heroic chief executive men, and they're usually yeah. men, uh, leaping in, how I saved the company, how I turned the company around, it's all down to me. Right. Um, the, the thing with the hero metaphor is it's all about the hero. And who is the, who are the other people in that hero metaphor? They are the people who get rescued. Uh, the hero turns up and saves the day, and the role of everybody else is to do what they're told and be rescued, thankfully. And while that may be great for the hero, it's not a good basis for a long-term, empowering, sustaining relationship, I don't uh, think. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so hero leadership, I think, while it has its it has its moments, and we're not, I'm not going to get rid of it uh, like this, but I'm offering an alternative. Another alternative, of course, was the servant leadership work I mentioned of Robert Greenleaf, um, a brilliant counterblast to the leader as host, uh, to the leader as hero, excuse me, um, uh, the leader in service to their organisation, the leader as the steward. Fantastic idea. Um, hasn't caught on as widely as we might have hoped, because it's a complex and not easy to grasp idea too. Um, and well, one of the is, reasons is it's not so easy is, to is grasp, I think, leadership is different from steward leadership. Absolutely, I think it is. It has some commonalities because hosts do serve, but they do other things as well. So. Hmm. Uh, the uh, the servant, if we have the, the leader as the servant, then what's the counterpart of the servant? Well, of course, it's the master. Yeah. Uh, if the people in the organization are the master and the leader is the servant, then where is the accountability? And this is a kind of really paradoxical idea. And, of course, Robert Greenleaf intended this to be a paradoxical idea. Where yeah. is the power of the leader coming from? Yeah. Um, uh, and, again... It's easy to to not see the power of the servant because in, in servant leadership, it's about fading into the background and not being seen very much, which is a wonderful idea. But then if people don't notice what's going on and they, and they uh, don't get to the importance of the leader then and the organization starts to fall to pieces, then that's not very satisfactory. Yes, yes. 
So, well, and that, I remember that that was about the same time that that concept began to become popularized. Um, the whole concept of participative leadership came to the forefront, and the unfortunate um, bastardization of that whole concept turned into um, leadership by democracy. And in organizations, you can't have the whole organization voting about, you know, what's our strategy, where are we going, et cetera, um, because it just, not everybody has all the information, and there it then is nobody to say, um, here's the direction we're heading, now let's figure out how to get there. And it, it, it was very interesting to see how that got muddled. Yes, um of course, I'm in, in, in favor of participation in decision-making as the next person. I think there's some very powerful things there. But you're right. Yeah. It, it, it can't be a democracy, or it, it, except under very special and odd circumstances. And yeah. in many business situations, of course, it's not a democracy. Um, yeah. But what we want is engagement. The thing that every organization is looking for is engaged people. Engagement is the secret ingredient, the secret source that makes all the other things come together in an organization. There's lots of academic writing about this, as I discovered. Um, There's people saying that once you have engaged workforces, then all your HR policies and everything else will begin to have an effect. But if you don't have an engaged workforce, if you have a workforce that's checking their brain at the door, then, then everything else becomes very tough. Yes. And the thing that I think the host metaphor does is instantly take us into a relationship about engagement. Uh, the host and guest relationship that's implied in the host leadership metaphor mm-hmm. is one, as I said, where the host is both inviting and, and involving the guest and they at their service too, um, which provides us with a very multidimensional account. And that's why the book is called uh, Host, Six New Roles of Engagement. And uh, on the cover, the, it says six new rules of engagement, but rules have been crossed out. And roles I love that. instead. <laughs> and that. the difference between a role and a rule, a rule is something you follow all the time and you have to do. Whereas a role is something that you step forward in you do something, and then you step back out of again. It's a much more flexible and fluid concept. Mm. But it's one we can all come to grips with, I think. So over the last 10 years or so, I have been researching what really good hosts do and then translating that into kind of business language, if you like. Mm. And we have this really nice model of six new roles of engagement, which is the six roles that leaders can step forward in as hosts, make some positive action, and then step back again and allow things to emerge into the space that they've created by their uh, input. So I'm curious about the whole concept of hosting and how things have shifted throughout the world um, around, especially I think the Western world, uh, around the formality or not 
of hosting. Um, as I think about how much more casual things have become and things even as simple as the, um, let's just take the RSVP, how you respond or when you respond to an invitation, how invitations don't seem to be taken as seriously these days when someone is invited to a dinner party or someone is invited to a gathering, um, it seems like there just isn't as much insistence on the, the ritual of the invitation. How has that affected this concept and people's ability to understand your concept of hosting? That's a great question, Cheryl. Uh, hosting is something that has been around for millennia as long as there's been humanity, I think. Yeah. It's a really, really fundamental uh, part of being together in a community is that people host things. They invite others to come together. Um, and, of course, this is a metaphor, first of all. So people will take the metaphor in whatever way they are uh, in yeah. their hosting to start with. Right, right. So if people host very informally, they'll take it as that. Whereas if they're more formal hosts, then they'll take it as that to start with. Um, and one of the things I've noticed is that I think that some of these hosting traditions ha have fallen somewhat behind. Mm. And as you say, are not that taken quite as seriously as they used to be. We, uh, and I'm not saying that we must do formal hosting or anything like that, but we're losing track of the importance of hosting in our society. Yes. I tell people that um, in, in the English town of 100 years ago, uh, anyone who's watched Downton Abbey might be familiar with this kind of thing, there was the church and the pub were the two places where the village or the town came together. And both of those have lost their power in various ways uh, here. Not so many people go to church anymore, certainly in this country. And uh, people don't go to pubs for fellowship and community anymore because we can, we can get that at home with our televisions and our central heating. Um, but they go to the pub perhaps for uh, for a meal or to, uh, to with, with their friends, not to meet others. Yeah. So in society, we wonder. I wonder about where are the hosts who bring people together. Mm. And uh, I think in many, many ways, that is not as much of a feature of society as it perhaps was 50 years ago. And things are very different if you go into places where there's still a very strong hosting culture. Uh, a lot yeah. of this emerged from nomads and Bedouin people in the desert where the going is very tough, um, conditions are very harsh, and in those cultures, there's a hosting tradition, hospitality tradition, that if you meet a stranger, you must invite them into your tent and give yeah. them food and tea and shelter, even before you ask their name or where they're going or what yeah. their journey is, because that's how you survive. Yes. And uh, I love the fact that it... it you have to give them the tea before you ask who they are because um, it can't be conditional on who they are. It must be above any kind of, is this my friend, is this my enemy? That, that survival instinct kind of comes above that. Um, so it's a very, very inclusive tradition in those parts of the world. 
And in some places, that's still how things work, where there are no hotels, where conditions are very tough on the Mongolian steppes or out in the, in mm. the desert, very much exists even today. Yes, yes. You know, I, I sometimes um, marvel at when I'm traveling the world, um, how I will meet strangers maybe on an airplane or maybe um, sitting in a restaurant somewhere in another country and striking up a conversation. And then somewhere along the way, they invite me or the people I'm with um, to join them in something, you know, either in an event or to their home so that they can introduce us to some of their friends, etc. And I think to myself, why is it that when we are travelers, I see this happen a lot, that when we are travelers, somehow we are more comfortable engaging with the strangers that we know nothing about and yet feel safer to do that than, for instance, if I'm home, I'm in my own town, I'm walking down the street, I meet a stranger, and they say, well, come to my house for tea. I'm not likely to do that. (laughs) It's like, I wonder, what is that? You know, I wonder if this goes way back to some of those traditions that you were just speaking about without us even knowing it. Yes, that's an interesting point, isn't it? I wonder whether part of it is because when we're traveling, we're a long way from home, and therefore if we don't hit it off with the people, we can kind of get out of it and never see them again. Whereas Mm -hmm. if it's somebody in our own town or our own street even, we're kind of maybe making more of it. It feels like we may be making more of a commitment. Ah. We may be a bit Ah. So we're all commitment folks. Oh, boy. Well... (laughs) Yeah, but really this is where I think that there are that, that having yeah. these places in local communities where people can meet on perhaps slightly less uh, high stakes terms is really crucial. And certainly in London and in many cities, that's really hard now. And if you don't go, if you don't go to church or you don't have a kind of particular yeah. hobby group, maybe yeah. you know to meet people through, or, or, or often people meet through their kids. Uh, other parents. Right, 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 yeah. But I don't have kids, well, and, uh, and it, I, you know, it, it's, it's actually very hard to meet new people now you know, on a sort of yes. non, non-risky non basis. Yes, yeah. So that's why we need hosts in our communities, and maybe we can come on to talk about that later in Absolutely. the discussion. Absolutely. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, um, let's, I'm going to talk about those six roles that you mention about engagement. We'll be right back. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting. Developing leaders worldwide. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Do you know your personal brand? You may have the idea, but do you really know how to execute it and perfect it? Join Kathy Bass, the branding lady, for an inside look at the world of branding on her show, Power Up Branding. Kathy and her guests will discuss the many facets of branding, including tips to help you rebrand or bring your brand to the next level. Power Up Branding can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get a plan. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This morning we are speaking with my very special guest, Dr. Mark McKeargau, the author of Host, Six New Roles of Engagement for Teams, Organizations, Communities, and Movements. So, Mark, we've spent the first segment talking a lot about the, the nature of hosting and some of the um, traditions around hosting. In your book, you look at um, how hosting applies to the workplace and the effectiveness of the workplace, and you identify six roles of engagement, and engagement really, as you say, is the secret sauce of um, workplaces that really work. So talk to us about those six roles. Well, this was uh, what took the 10 years. I was thinking of the metaphor of the leader as a host took about five seconds once upon a time. And then... Trying to unpack that, what does that mean? And that's been a much more interesting and difficult route. So what we say in the book is the key question for a host and a leader at all times is, are you going to step forward or step back next? And we've spoken about these six roles as ways you can step forward, ways you can do something and engage with other people. And then after you've done it, you step back and allow them to do something and take their turn. Mm. So our roles, uh, very briefly, uh, go like this. And you can think about it as if you were hosting a party or something, uh, what would you do? Well, the first thing you do is think about what kind of thing do I want to have? What kind of do do I want to put on? Uh, And what am I hoping for? And what might I like to come of it because of it? 
And that's the role of the initiator. The initiator is the one who has the idea and then takes some steps towards it. This is not a very new idea, but it's an important one. Um, and hosts are very good at working with like a long-term dream or aspiration and then taking short-term steps and staying maneuverable in that direction. We have a nice piece in the book called The User's Guide to the Future, which talks about this combination of long-term thinking and small-term action as being a very powerful way to work in a confusing and complex world. So the host is often the one who goes first and steps forward and starts things moving in a direction. And then having had that thought about what kind of do do I want to have, then we need some other people. So the next role is the role of the inviter. Who are we going to invite? And how are we going to invite them? And uh, how are we going to make an attractive invitation? And how are we going to let them know um, why it's them we want to join us? Um, and this is, uh, this is where we can engage other people with, I call it soft power. It's a mm. term from diplomatic scholarship, I guess, but I like it very much. Hard power is force and coercion and payment. Soft power <laughs> is about influence. So I've always thought that the event or the party begins for your guests. The moment they receive the invitation. And so everything that happens from that moment begins to form their experience that will culminate in whatever you are creating, right? And so I absolutely agree with you. This is so important. And as a consultant and uh, um, organizational facilitator, I've learned over the years the power of a good invitation. When you invite people to come and work on something with you together, if you can set out a good invitation about what it is we'll be doing, what it is we perhaps won't be doing, um, why I want you to come, uh, what to expect on the day, uh, here's some things to think about in advance, uh, here's my contact details in, in the meantime if you get any concerns or questions. You set it up well, and when people walk in, they're you know, in an upbeat mood, they want to work on the issue, they, they, they are, their questions have been answered in advance, and we're halfway there already. <laughs> Right, right, and it, right. And you're also managing difference. expectations, right? I'm sorry? You're also managing expectations there. I'm sorry, Cheryl. I just, I'm not hearing that. So the, the expectations of the guests, you're able to manage that in some way. Yes, yes. So they come with, with what I call the right expectations, so useful expectations. And, and what makes difficult people at work, the difficult guests, is have people who have the wrong expectations, who have yeah. expectations that don't match everybody else's. That's when trouble starts. <laughs> um, so inviting it, and inviting also has this element of you make the invitation, but then the other people have to say yes or no. Ah. Um, so invitations always have a degree of choice about them. Mm. And if it's not an, if it's no, if there's no choice, then it's not really an invitation, it's an instruction. <laughs> and instructions are fine sometimes, but, but invitations have this enormous power of having people say yes or no. And when they say yes, of course, they start to put themselves into, uh, into the deal. They make their own commitment to their involvement in a way that they don't if you just tell them. 
But I think this whole area of inviting is, is something we can all learn to be better at and we can mm. actually fine-tune. And the little things in invitations make quite a big difference. So when I think about the um, invitation, for instance, that the Queen of England extends, um, not that I've ever had an invitation by the Queen, um, however, what I hear is that um, she actually does not extend the invitation until her um, staff actually does the research and, and is able to assess whether or not the invitation will be accepted. <laughs> is that true? You know that. I think there may be some truth in that. Yes, there certainly feelers get put out. The British society is one where there, there are definitely feelers put out and hypothetical conversations had by people lower down the chain about, suppose we asked you about this, what might you say, kind of thing. Yes, and these things yes. happen very, very quietly in back yes. corridors. Yes, and, and there's yes. a great degree of wisdom in that, in my view. You don't ha not, not everything has to happen up front and in big public areas. And indeed, if you, if you do things and give invitations in, in public in full viewability, you're running a risk. Oh, yeah. Um, I was just watching a great movie the other day, Sunshine on Leaf. Uh, it's, a, it's a musical film based on the music of the Proclaimers, Scottish duo. I'm not sure how big they are in the States, but they're quite big here. And there's a scene in there where this young man proposes to his sweetheart in full view of a you know, very, very large gathering. And, of course, she says no. And it just completely blows the thing once and forever. Um, <laughs> it's a high-risk strategy, whereas you know, there are good reasons why often it's safer to propose in a, small, in a quiet corner. You know, yeah. and also uh, <laughs> with a bit of foreknowledge. You know, I, I just, uh, just a, a sidebar here, I, I just don't get this whole thing about making this huge personal invitation that is something so deeply important, hugely public, without knowing the answer. It just seems so odd to me. I, I'm not sure. I mean, in some ways, it um, takes the reverence out of it, and, it and it speaks to a bit more how we've become so casual about invitations in general. Yeah? Mm, it's, uh, I've come to the conclusion there are three key elements to a good invitation. One of them is that it should be acknowledging you know, as uh, our colleague Lynn Twist of the Pachamama Alliance says, uh, yeah. a good invitation is always an acknowledgement. So mm -hmm. it's nice to be asked is one way of um, uh, summing that up. So it's about, it's about what is it, why do I want you to come and join us? Yeah. And what is it I'd like you to bring? So I'm asking you. you know, often invitations these days are kind of very general. I'm having this thing. Come if you want, yeah. or if you don't want, I don't care. Whereas yeah. a really good invitation says, I'm having this thing, and I'd like you to be there because yeah. here's what I value in you. Here's what I'd like you to bring that will be useful to other people. Mm. And that's uh, such a different level of attention. And then the second piece of the invitation is it's attractive. And, and the thing that we're going to do is going to be really amazing. Huh? So mm. talk that up a bit. 
So acknowledgement, attractive, and the third part, of course, is optional. And so would you like yeah. to come? Yes. You know, yeah. Have a think about it. And not forcing that choice. Because when the yes right. comes, it has that much more commitment about it. Absolutely. And if it's a no, well, that's just a message from the universe that you know, either your invitation wasn't good enough or they're not, inter- they're not the right people right now to be engaged in this. Mm. Um, that's okay. Mm. Mm. I love that. And so, so back on our... Go ahead. I was going to say, back on our roles, if you want me to go to the next yeah. one, we've had the initiator and the inviter. Yeah. And uh, the next role is the space creator. So having invited the people, you need to create the place where this thing is going to happen. And, of course, space is a very, very general sense. It might be virtual even these days. It might be a physical mm-hmm. place. And the host's role is really to pay great attention to the space. What kind yeah. of thing do I hope will happen in the space? And, therefore, what, how am I going to prepare the space to support that? And we see this in, in offices, of course. If yeah. it's a very creative, very kind of sparky environment we want, then we go down the Silicon Valley route of beanbags, pinball machines, <laughs> uh, space invaders, consoles, uh-huh. Java coffee on tap and whatever else. Um, but not every environment needs that. Right. If it's an environment where we're going to be making precision electronic equipment, then it's going to be a very different kind of place. Sure. In an environment where we're um, uh, uh, designing um, power plant engineering, it's going to be different. Yeah. So how does the environment support the interactions that we want? And the host's role is to create that environment, invite the people into it, and then, of course, allow them to use it and enjoy it and be stimulated by it and change it and mess it up. <laughs> and the host's yeah. role is to go around, you know, replenishing it and uh, adjusting it, and just as you would in a, you know, in a party. And I think this is a, such a key role uh, of the leader is supporting the environment that you're putting people in. Absolutely. And making sure the environment is doing everything it can to support the activity. Um, and as a consultant, I've got to poke my nose and uh, around the doors of many, many organizations over the years. And it's amazing what an uh, interesting correlation there is between the, the, the physical state of the place and the whole kind of emotional and uh, health of the organization. Mm. Very often, messy offices show messy thinking. Not not always, and it's not as simple as that, but, but I've just kind of noticed that over the years. Whereas people who know about the importance of space and keep replenishing it and, and sorting it and redoing it, um, uh, that's often a sign of somebody who's focused on the task enough to, to know the priority of that. Mm. Mm. You know, that just makes me think about um, what is going on in the in a lot of um, organizational structures these days and the whole concept of open office versus um, small, closed, individual offices and moving from cubicles to open desks. So even the 
the illusion of having privacy, which the cubicles really were, um, you know, is being removed in a lot of organizations. And there's a lot of controversy about how that does or does not play. And so the host, a la the leader, would need to have sensitivity to that. Um, do you have a, a sense of the effect of this open concept in offices? What's going on these days? Well, there's this idea of hot desking and very yeah. flexible space. Most people hate it, in yeah. my observation, from the sidelines, yeah. because yeah. you don't get to have your little space with your little photographs yeah. and your little stuff, and that's, that's right. your own place. And I think that some, and I, I know lots of hot desking places where people have the same hot desk every day, because <laughs> that's how people yeah. are. People want yeah. their territory for the most yeah. part. You know? yeah. Yeah. So, but I think what we do is, as leaders then is think, well, there are different folks in our organizations and different cultures and different things that are needed. How do we support those differences? So maybe in one place, it's, it's good to have, you know, slightly old-fashioned, everyone has a desk, particularly if they're there every day anyway. Whereas in another part of the of the office, maybe there are people who are out a lot of the time. They only spend one day in three or four in the office, and that's a very different kind of deal. Therefore, you need a different sort of space to support that. And then we want meeting spaces uh, where those two groups of people, let's imagine this, can communicate. So maybe that's the coffee area, and how are we going to set that up, mm. and who's going to look after that, and how are we going to make sure it doesn't descend into a mess? Mm. Um, and uh, I interviewed a very, very interesting guy in London called Neil Usher, who was the head of property for global mining company Rio Tinto, and he'd been in charge of moving that firm out of their offices in the city of London that were very much uh, oak-paneled little offices with corridors with doors and names on the doors into a big new open plan thing and designing the new open plan thing to support these different kinds of workings. And he says, you can't fully plan it. He thought and thought and planned and planned, and some of it worked and some of it just didn't, and then he had to change it. So he designed nice little coffee areas on each floor, which largely went unused, because he'd also designed a fantastic cafe right by the front door. And everybody loved to use this place for their ah. meetings and coffees. Ah. So... And that was more popular than he thought. So he expanded the, co the cafe near the door and redid the coffee areas into something else. Uh, and he says that, that you, part of this whole thing about working with emergence is that you never can plan the whole thing. You have to stay on yeah. it. You have to stay changing yeah. it. You have to stay upgrading it. And that's what makes a great space is one that gets upgraded and changed and adapted continuously, I think. Well, and good hosts always pay attention to things that need to be tweaked even in the middle of the party, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next, Absolutely right. The, the next role you talk about is gatekeeper. Tell us about that. Yeah, the gatekeeper, that's now you've set the space up, people are going to come through the door. And so the gatekeeper stands at the door, if you like, stands at the gate, and determines who can come in and who can't, and what can come in and what can't. Um, and, of course, we think of hosts as inviting people in, generally speaking. But there are sometimes calls to be made that certain people or certain topics are not part of this particular gathering. And, of course, you, you hope that they're not going to show up anyway, but you can do your best to make those decisions and let people know what's happening so that things go smoothly. 
And I uh, introduce uh, a concept which I got from Ed Olson and Glenda Yang um, of container size in the book. I think this is a fantastic idea for leaders. Um, I've never seen it written up as a leadership idea, so I've done that in this chapter. Hmm. The idea is that a container is, uh, if you like, the size of the thing that we're talking about. Uh, so it has two dimensions, the size of the question and the number of people involved. Um, and if you have a very big container, it's a very big question and a load of different people, and that's messy, but creative. On the other hand, if you have a small, defined question and a few people, that's kind of very much, let's make a decision, let's get on with it. Um, yeah. And the host can adjust these two dimensions, the number of people and the size of the question to make life easier for themselves in terms of making progress. And sometimes you need very big containers and sometimes you need very small containers mm. and sometimes you need to invite more people in and other times you need to focus the topic a bit more. And these are levers that the gatekeeper role draws our attention to. What are we kind of allowing into this particular space and what is for another day and another time or whatever like that? Um, and in hosts, you see, um, invite people in, but they can also chuck people out. Yeah, in the case of parties that you know might get raucous or whatever, it is the host's privilege and role to be able to say something. I think we should do now, and it's very hard to argue against that. Yeah, with the with the host in their position. Yes. Yeah. Uh, of course, we we doesn't often come to that, and and we we try and do other things rather than do that. But it is definitely the host's role to throw people out if that's what it comes to, and uh, and um, you know make, do something else. So there are so this idea of gatekeeping is 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 this uh, idea of standing by the gate, welcoming people across the threshold, of course, and then making these calls about what's in here and what isn't for now. Yes. Yes. And so there are two more roles that you talk about, connector and co-participator. Tell us about those. Yes. So the connector role is once you've got the people in the space, uh, hosts are very good at connecting with people, obviously, but they're also very, very good at connecting people with each other. So if I can see you, Cheryl, and uh, I know that you're interested in innovative leadership ideas, and there's somebody else over there who's called Carl, who's from England, and he's also interested in leadership, I should get the two of you together and introduce you and make yeah. a connection. Um, and this sort of second level of connection, as we call it in the book, putting other people together, is such a valuable thing, uh, such a valuable role for the leader to be doing, because that way you're creating huge amounts of possibility, which you don't then have to do much about, because if the, the connection will go and take root and interesting things will emerge, and that's fantastic. Of course, occasionally it doesn't. That's also fine, too. Um, but hosts introduce people to each other. And I think that's a wonderful leadership uh, role to be to be shown in that uh, capacity. Absolutely. And it's also a wonderful um, way to network. That's a very powerful yeah. It's very powerful, isn't it? Even uh, uh, Dr. Ivan Meisner, who's the founder of BNI, a Z-networking organization, says that when he goes into a room full of strangers, he pretends that he's a host. He thinks that he's a host. Uh, and he starts introducing himself to people and meeting people so he can connect them with each other. 
it's a very, very interesting place to put oneself as a slightly shy person. I really sympathize mm-hmm. with this. You know, I'm not very good at small talk. I've had to learn how to, how to do some of that uh, stuff. Mm. Uh, and I find when I put my host hat on and I start meeting people with an eye to, I want to find out about you so I can introduce you to somebody else with the right other person. Puts me in a really different position. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then and very so- briefly, the co-participator role, um, this is the last one, uh, the hosts and leaders join in with the thing they're doing, they're leading. So if somebody invites you around for a meal, they also eat the food with you. Now, they serve you first, of course, uh, but they sit and eat with you. They join in. And this is where hosting departs from facilitating, um, because often the facilitator is trying not to join in in some way. Yes. Um, whereas a host will absolutely join in. And finding interesting ways for leaders to join in to play their part in the activity of the organization. This is how they don't become disengaged and strange figures who live on the 48th floor and arrive by helicopter every day and we never see them. That's not usually a very effective leadership position. Somebody who, who we know, we see, we see them joining in, we see them taking a turn occasionally at whatever it is we're doing. You know, they play their part as a participator in the organization as well as the leader of it. And uh, I'm very, very keen on that as a stre- something that strengthens relationships and strengthens respect as well when people see the leader um, taking their turn. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I have seen, and I know you have too, um, organizations where there are big initiatives or moves toward make change, making change happen, et cetera, and you see the leaders walk in the room, talk about it, talk it up, be excited, and then say, so, have at it, and they leave and you never see them again. And that never works very well. So maintaining your role as host throughout some large organizational initiative could be very important. Yes, and that you'll be you'll be doing it quietly, as well as encouraging other people to do it. Yes, um, uh, and I think the quietly is probably quite an important thing there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I even discovered uh, a very interesting. Uh, sort of person I'd never heard of before uh, in my research called a tumbler. And a tumbler is a, this is a Yiddish word, and a tumbler was a, a figure in the Borch belt of the Catskill Mountains around New York State uh, in the 20th century. There's this thing called the Borch belt where Jewish people from New York and surroundings would go to have fun together on the weekend, and there'd be shows and entertainment. And the tumbler were to be employed by the hotel to get everybody involved and participating. Um, And so dragging people onto the dance floor and, you know, making a fool of themselves and getting everyone laughing and and getting everyone engaged. Um, And the tumbler couldn't go home until everybody else was engaged. (laughs) And I thought it was a fantastic role, and it would be a wonderful organizational change role to have somebody as the tumbler. Uh, whose job is to get everybody doing the thing, at which point they can kind of melt away into the background because they don't, you know, once everybody's up, they're kind of all right. 
Um, but I'd never heard of that until I came across it a little while ago in research for the book. And there's so many interesting things from different traditions and cultures. You know, we've got many things covered in the book. We've got Buddhism, we've got Judaism, we've got Christianity, we've got Sikhism, uh, for different countries, uh, China, Japan, South America, North America, Europe, um, different elements of hosting traditions that all shine a slightly different light on how you might go about thinking of yourself as a host. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, Mark, we have actually moved right through our um, last break, and we have come to the end of our show, believe it or not. Um, and so two things. One is um, I, I really want to have you back so that we can talk more about this and talk more about um, moving into the role of host in your community. Um, I know you've done some fascinating things there. Um, but the other is, you know, people are going to want to know a whole lot more about this concept, and they're going to want to know um, how to learn about this and where to buy your book, etc. Um, how can people reach you? Well, the website hostleadership.com would be a good place to start. Hostleadership.com uh, has information about the book. It has information about our forthcoming online courses, uh, first of which starts on the 5th of November. Uh, it has information about uh, hosting around the world, and it ha has videos, and it has a community element, too, where you can get together online with other people interested in this conversation and uh, start to meet other folks all over the world who are interested in, in these ideas. So, um, you know, we're running a party here, and we'd like people to come and join in with it. Uh, the book <laughs> is, of course, available on Amazon.com. Uh, simply called Host, and the subtitle Six New Roles of Engagement for Teams, Organizations, Communities, and Movements by Mark McCurgo and Helen Bailey. And that's available in Kindle form as well as paperback for those who'd rather read it on their devices. Fantastic. Mark McCargo, thank you for being here. It's been a privilege to have you here today. And much, much luck with this host, Six New Roles of Engagement for Teams, Organizations, Communities, and Movements. Remember, everyone, to think big. The world to be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 